Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. So we're going to talk about Charlotte Mason and the philosophy of science. And so to get started, there's two questions. Why teach your children science? Can science discover truth? Why or why not? What I'd like to do is take a look at two different answers to these questions that have been given. And I've chosen uh, two representative examples. Uh, first, I'm going to share the answer given by David Hicks. Not, maybe not all of you have, have heard of him. I'll tell you a little bit about him. Then I'm going to talk about the answer given by Francis Schaeffer. And I assume Francis Schaeffer is known by most of you, the great 20th century Christian philosopher, theologian, and apologist. And then we will tie this back to Charlotte Mason, and we'll also tie this back to how this affects what you're doing every day in your homeschool. So we're going to start with the answer that David Hicks gives to this question. Um, this is in the book Norms and Nobility. Uh, this book was published in 1981, and it is the winner of the 2002 Padilla Prize, which is given by the Searcy Institute for Dedication to Classical Education. Uh, Andrew Kern in 2010 wrote the following about this book. He said, Norms and Nobility is the best and most important book written on education since C.S. Lewis wrote The Abolition of Man in 1943. Um, it's hard to overstate how important this book is or how celebrated this book is within classical education circles. And so it may seem like I'm, you know, if you're not familiar with that, you may think I'm picking an obscure example, but I, I'm not. I'm picking a very highly respected book, again, as Andrew Kern says, almost on the level of C.S. Lewis. So to find uh, David Hicks's answer to this question, it's fairly easy to do so um, because he has a chapter on science. Um, it's chapter five, and uh, it's called Saving the Appearances. And you can see my, I'm kind of, you know, some people don't write in their books, they treat their books as sacred. I'm like a write in your book kind of guy. Um, so you can see my notes here. Um, there's tons of notes written in this book. So why is this chapter called Saving the Appearances? Why, why not call it Chapter 5 Science? Why call it Saving the Appearance? What does that phrase mean? And so here's the definition of the phrase Saving the Appearances. When science was studied by the ancients, it was with the peculiar intention of saving the appearances, of using abstract, rational models to bring irregular substance at the lowest level of being into line with imminent form at the higher levels. Now, since that is obviously completely understandable by everyone here, I'm just going to move on and talk about other things because, of course, everyone knows precisely what this is talking about. Well, okay, so maybe it's not self-evident. Maybe we should probe into this a little bit more. So, um, so to kind of help uh, maybe discern what is meant by this very densely packed phrase, um, notice how it talks about the levels of being. 
talks about irregular substance at the lowest level of being and getting that in line with imminent form at the higher levels. So the, what are the levels of being that are being referred to in this statement? So this is also explained in the chapter. And I'm going to illustrate for you the levels of being. Um, first, there is level one, which is uh, referred to as at the lowest level. And the levels of being... Uh, what, uh, what uh, Hicks does is he draws an analogy between the levels of being of a person, a human being, and the levels of being of nature. And he uses an analogy to compare those two. So in the person or the human being, at the lowest level, we have, quote, man's physical nature, his flesh and five senses. Now, what is the counterpart to that in the natural world? What is the, that corresponds to, in the natural world, the material nature of the universe. So then we have level two, number two, at the next level. In a person or a human being, that's the rational nature of man. So we've moved a step up, now we have the rational nature of man. And that corresponds to the law, purpose, or logos inherent in the material universe. Then we have what's number three, what is referred to as the highest level. And in the human person, that is man's spiritual, mythopoeic, self-transcendent nature. And what does that correspond to in the natural world? That corresponds to the divine creator the lawgiver, the form of the good, standing above the material universe. I just want to pause here and note that these are given as synonyms, the divine creator, the lawgiver, and the form of the good. Um, from my point of view, uh, my creator is not a form. My creator is the living God. Um, but in any event, that is uh, the level three, the highest level. Now, what is the imminent level? He referred to the imminent level. That's actually, I believe, meant to be level two, is the imminent level. So we're going to talk a little bit about what that means in terms of how one approaches science or thinks about science. So here we've got the two levels. Number, uh, number one, I'm, I'm dropping off level three for a moment. We have level one at the lowest level, level two at the next level. So David Hicks talks about the history of how philosophy and science interacted. And so he starts with Pythagoras. And he says that Pythagoras found evidence of a perfect, imminent reality. His evidence was not found at the empirical level of appearances, but at a higher level of the rational mind. Empirical. Empirical means your observations. Empirical is what you're perceiving through your senses. So Pythagoras discovered evidence of a reality that cannot be perceived empirically. It cannot be perceived by your senses. It is something that is discerned through the rational mind. That is the imminent or present a real reality. So then we move down from there to the lowest level. The ancients looked upon the natural world as a representation of an impalpable, unchanging reality full of meaning and truth, not as something existing in its own right. So the imminent reality was at level two. The natural world was a sort of symbolic representation of that, but it didn't have the same reality or tangible nature to it. 
And so because of that, since the observable world is constantly in a state of flux, no fixed knowledge of it can be had. Therefore, one can only attain fixed knowledge at the highest level of knowledge by escaping the fickle world of sense perception and by contemplating the divine reality, the supreme good underlying it. So this goes to show that ideas matter. Belief in levels of being has a direct impact on how one investigates reality. So, saving the appearances, and another way to explain it, the irrational, concrete manifestations that we find in the material universe required rational, abstract models. That's what's meant by saving the appearances. It is a required procedure due to the fact that the physical level one world is inherently irrational. There are some implications that flow on from this. The second question I asked you is, can science discover truth? In this model, the answer is a firm no. Science cannot discover truth. Philosophy dictated, therefore, that one could save the appearances with hypothetical models, but one could not know the appearances in a manner commensurate with modern empirical proof and technological innovation. Only the non-empirical, unalterable, imminent reality could be the subject of knowledge. And therefore, contradiction between hypotheses did not matter. Aristarchus put forward his heliocentric hypothesis, his hypothesis that the sun is the center of the solar system, not as a description of physical reality, but for use in a mathematical model. The second implication, not surprisingly, is that science is not empirical. Science is not something that is approached through the senses and what you can determine by perceiving your environment. Quote, the apparent irregularity and instability of nature led the ancients to question the reliability of experiment and observation. One needs only abstract models with non-empirical hypotheses to save the appearances. To the ancients who expected science to save the appearances, experience for its own sake was worthless. Or worse, an experience of the unregenerate appearances might possibly prove detrimental, creating by emulation disharmony in the soul. Now I want you to linger on that last quote for a minute and tell me if that last quote motivates you to take your children out to do nature study. <laughs> it could create disharmony in the soul. I'm not sure that Jesus had that in mind when he told us to consider the lilies of the field. That has actually brought great harmony to my soul. Science is theoretical and not practical. Quote, the ancients' interest in science is what we today would call theoretical. The ancients expected the study of mathematics to take their minds off the appearances and to put them on the abstract forms underlying the appearances. They wanted to get away from that 
irregularity, incoherence of the natural world and focus on where they could find order and harmony for their souls. R.J. Rushdeny wrote that the goal of man at that time was to be an incarnation of the idea, the universal, and hence the study of geometry of abstract forms was more religious than practical. Or more accurately, was practical because religious. So, third implication, science is theoretical and not practical. And then the fourth final implication is that science is deductive and not inductive. What's the difference between those two? Deductive is when you start from known principles and you make logical inferences from them. That is deductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is that you start with lots of data and you look for patterns and you draw conclusions and principles from that rich set of data. So in this model of science, it is deductive. Quote, having recently acquired a compelling system of logic, the ancients preferred to concentrate on abstract deductive methods of proof synthesis rather than on concrete inductive methods of discovery or analysis. So what does this all lead to in terms of the answer to the first question, why study science? What is the motivation to study science? The answer given by David Hicks is to develop virtue. Deep down, perhaps, he says, the ancients distrusted science. Science's preoccupation with unstable appearances hindered man's climb to a knowledge of the changeless imminent realities and left man open to the excess of greed and ambition. The ancients treated knowledge as a source of virtue challenging the individual to improve himself and to look beyond the appearances for truth. So science is useful to the extent that it can get you past the appearances and into the true harmonious knowledge, which then, and only then, leads you to virtue. Now you may say, well, this is the model of the ancients, but surely we have moved beyond that. And surely no one would wish to recover that approach to science today. Actually, the argument of this book is that the classical approach should be recovered. The author says, so long as it seeks to move man toward the highest level of being, saving the appearances, while promising more perfect self-knowledge, mathematics remains a unifying force in the curriculum. Mathematics is good, it's unifying, it's helpful, so long as it drives us towards saving the appearances. But as soon as it loses its classical aim and begins to serve the lowest level of being, remember that level one, mathematics also loses its integrative character and fixes a gulf between the arts and the sciences. And that is not a good thing, according to this reasoning. There is still a need today to save the appearances, to make man's knowledge of the appearances answer to his sense experience, no, answer to his normative concerns. Even in science, what is draws its meaning and value from what ought to be. Uh, this influence of wanting to recover this approach can be found in many places, uh, another very well-regarded uh, book in the classical education community is The Liberal Arts Tradition by Clark and Jane. This uh, was an immensely popular book published in 2013. And uh, 
here's how we can see the influence of this first answer to science, this first model of science, and how it plays out in practice. So the authors say that a foundation in the seven liberal arts provides the common reason which is required to adjudicate the truth of arguments and justify or demonstrate the claims of reason. This approach holds that to know something means to be able to justify it through a series of causal links describing why it must be so. And so all of the liberal arts must be involved in this process. What this is saying is that to know science, you have to have fully developed all of the skills in the liberal arts so that you can not only describe things the way they are, but describe why it must be so. Why it is that the physical phenomenon in the universe must be that way as reflections of the imminent reality. And so what are the prerequisites before you can study science? How long does it take to master the seven liberal arts? Science is not for children. Science is for those who have developed their reasoning such that they can reason at this level and explain fully what they are seeing. And so it's interesting to see how Clark and Jane explain the role of experiments in science. They talk about experiment, they talk about the phrase reconstructing the canonical experiments. It's about connect, experiments are about connecting with history. Here was an experiment that was done in the past. Let's recreate that experiment so that we can see why things are so and why they must be so using all of the skills of logic and, and, and uh, dialectic that we've developed over the years. So let me ask a question. If this was the model of science of the ancients, who is responsible for destroying this model? And now I'd like to, did anyone want to just throw out a name of who you think was responsible for destroying this model of science? Anyone want to guess? Who? Darwin? Um, thank you for that. No? Another guess? What? Galileo? Thank you. Good guess. No? I'm sorry? Nope, not the church. There's a name. I'm looking for a person. All, all answers are good answers. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm like, I don't want to be hurting people's self-esteem by saying no. But there is a right answer. There is a right answer. So this is like math. Somebody, who? Who? No, 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 no. Somebody's got to give me the name. Descartes, you're getting warmer. It's not Descartes. It's very, very close. Did I, what? Nope, it's not Comenius, but Comenius was a contemporary. And Comenius was a big fan of this man. Nope. Nope. Come on, somebody. Yes, Francis, yes, yes, Francis Bacon. Nancy knew that. She was just waiting to see if somebody else could. Francis Bacon is the man who dismantled this system. And uh, what Dave, here's what David Hicks has to say about Francis Bacon. No doubt. Francis Bacon, who disparaged classical science for its pure non-technological approach, is the true prophet of our age. Now, just to be clear, that is not a compliment. Being the prophet of our age is a bad thing. Um, so Francis Bacon is the guy who disparaged and dismantled classical science. Here's what uh, David Hicks said about Francis Bacon. Unlike the playful hypotheses 
used by the ancients to save the appearances Bacon's models presume to describe things as they truly are. Oh my goodness. It's criminal. He's actually saying, we're not just modeling that the sun is the center of the universe. He's actually saying that it is. He's trying to say that science can actually reveal a fact of, that can be known. It's the beginning of the end. With Bacon, technological science begins to replace the purely speculative science of antiquity, gradually rendering the inherited purposes of classical education as foolish. I would expect that he would be concerned about that if that's what he did. Bacon started a revolution that profoundly altered man's assumptions about himself while dramatically expanding his opportunities for material progress. Now, is David Hicks alone in asserting that Francis Bacon was the turning point, the, the beginning of the end or the definitive end of this classical model? Actually, no, David Hicks is not alone in this assertion. Um, you can find it in some of the most surprising places. So many of you may have read The Benedict Option by Rod Dreher. And here's what uh, Rod Dreher had to say about Francis Bacon. Sir Francis Bacon famously said that scientific discovery ought to be applied to improve the lives of humans by reducing their pain, suffering, and poverty. Okay, it doesn't seem like a bad thing for those of you who are benefiting from medicine and so on. But this was a turning point in the history of ideas. The natural world was to be taken no longer as something to be comprehended as in any way an icon of the divine, but rather as something to be understood and manipulated by the will of humankind for its own sake. In this way, the scientific revolution further distanced God from creation in the minds of men. What does he mean that the material world was no longer seen as an icon of the divine? An icon is just a painting, a representation. In other words, due to Francis Bacon, we're no longer seeing the material world as just level one. It's not just a representation of the imminent reality. Instead, it's something that can be real and understood on its own terms. And that was the beginning of the end. Uh, I had the privilege of attending the 2019 Circe National Conference. And I was especially interested to hear the talk by uh, Ken Myers entitled Scientific Reductionism and the Law of Form. And in this talk, I heard Ken Myers um, in this general session explain why modern science is the reason why we have lost faith in form. He explained that science carries with it metaphysical and theological assumptions which are often concealed or denied. And he used the word villains to describe Bacon and Descartes. I heard it with my own ears. He said that Bacon advanced knowledge for power instead of for its own sake. Seems pretty bad. He said that the modern scientific movement was tainted from its birth. That's what I was told. Now, I'm curious whether 
the PNEU knew anything about this tainting that was taking place? Did the PNEU know about Francis Bacon and what he had done? Well, in the Parents' Review, 1901, in an article entitled Socrates by a man named Maxwell Maxwell. It's kind of cool to have a first name and a last name that are the same. And his middle initial is Y. So you can say, my name is Maxwell Maxwell. Why? Um, so Maxwell, in his article on Socrates, he said, Aristotle is by Lord Bacon. Now, Aristotle represents the ancients. Aristotle is by Lord Bacon almost regarded as the enemy of mankind or at any rate, as one who, for 2,000 years, detained the chosen people in the wilderness of barren speculation, instead of allowing them to enjoy the material blessings of the land flowing with milk and honey. Now, to be clear, what I'm trying to say with this quote is that the PNEU understood that bacon was a transition point. He was a transition point. This is not just Rod Dreher, David Hicks, and Ken Myers who are saying that he was a transition point. The PNEU knew that he was a transition point. They knew that Bacon and Aristotle were representing fundamentally different points of view and that Francis Bacon regarded the, the speculative kind of deductive science as barren and something that kept God's people from the land flowing with milk and honey. So now I'd like to use this pivot point of Francis Bacon to talk about the perspective of Francis Schaeffer, the great 20th century Christian apologist and philosopher. I'm going to talk about what Francis Schaeffer had to say about Bacon. But let me just uh, cue it up with one brief quote by Schaeffer. This is from his book, How Should We Then Live? He noted, uh, Schaeffer noted that medieval science was based on authority rather than observation. It developed through logic rather than experimentation. Now, when he uses the word authority and says that science was based on authority, kind of in my classification, I'm referring to that as deductive. Remember, deductive reasoning means you start with some foundational principles and you logically develop from that. So, so when he's saying that ancient science, medieval science, was based on authority, I believe that's saying it was a deductive reasoning approach. Why, why does he mean that it, it was based on authority rather than observation? Here's an example of that. So one of the science books that is celebrated in the Charlotte Mason community is the book Men, Microscopes, and Living Things. Has anyone read that book with your kids? So I was fascinated to read that book with my 13-year-old. I, I really enjoyed it. It's a great chapter on Francis Bacon in that book, by the way. Um, and so here's just a quote from Men, Microscopes, and Living Things talking about the medieval era of science. Quote, the question of how many teeth were in a horse's mouth was debated with great heat in many learned circles. Solemn books were written on the subject with references to other learned books, but no one thought to open a horse's mouth to count its teeth. For this was the age when learning looked to authority. There you have it, straight from the horse's mouth. So another illustration from uh, Men, Microscopes, and Living Things talks about Vesalius. And Vesalius was uh, a paradigm breaker in the era of science. And so here's another story I read about with my 13-year-old just this year. The author writes, Vesalius's conclusions were not in accordance with tradition. What caused him special difficulty was the thigh bone. Vesalius stated that in humans, the thigh bone was straight not curved as in the dog. 
His old teacher, Silvius, was furious at this statement. Of course, the Greeks were right, meaning the bones, thigh bone was curved. Of course, the Greeks were right. So Silvius said men had undoubtedly changed their thigh bones by foolish practices. Wearing tight trousers had probably straightened out their natural curves. So medieval science was based on authority, but Francis Schaeffer points out the following. Francis Bacon, quote, fought a battle against the old order of scholasticism with its slavish dependence on accepted authorities. He stressed careful observation and systematic collection of information to unlock nature's secrets. God himself had told mankind to have dominion over nature, and to Francis Bacon, science had a part in this. Francis Bacon, who could be called the major prophet of the scientific revolution, took the Bible seriously, including the historic fall, the revolt of man in history. I've highlighted the word prophet there. Both David Hicks and Francis Schaeffer refer to Bacon as a prophet. Is he the prophet of our age? Or is he the prophet of the scientific revolution? Are they one and the same? Bacon did not see science as autonomous, according to Schaefer. Man, including science, is not autonomous. He is to take seriously what the Bible teaches about history and about that which it teaches has occurred in the cosmos. Yet, upon the base of the Bible's teaching, science and art are intrinsically valuable before both men and God. This gave a strong impetus for the creative stirrings of science to continue rather than to be spasmodic. Science had intrinsic value. It's not a dangerous thing that might introduce disharmony into the soul. The rise of modern science, according to Schaefer, did not conflict with what the Bible teaches. Indeed, at a crucial point, the scientific revolution rested upon what the Bible teaches. Both Alfred North Whitehead and J. Robert Oppenheimer have stressed that modern science was born out of the Christian world view. For Bacon and other scientists working on the Christian base, there was no separation or final conflict between what the Bible teaches and science. The scientific revolution was born, modern science was born out of the Christian worldview. That's a belief that Francis Schaeffer underwrites. And it's interesting because I don't know if any of you have heard of Eve Anderson. Eve Anderson was somebody who's kind of like a living link, was until she, she passed away a few years ago. But she was like a living link to the Charlotte Mason era. And uh, Eve Anderson studied at the House of Education. And uh, many of her notes can be found in the Armit Gallery and in the digital archive. She took a class or, or studied the history of education at the House of Education set up by Charlotte Mason. And here's an interesting, I love this little diagram that we have from her notebooks when she was learning the history of education at the House of Education. And notice at the top we have sense. Sense is the word at the top. Sense is our five senses, empirical. And then we have this list, Comenius, Rousseau, 
Pestalozzi, Locke, Mulcaster, Ratich, I don't know, I don't know that guy. And then Bacon, the little arrow connecting Bacon to Pestalozzi. So see how there's a beginning, sense, turning and trusting to your senses and the observation of the material world was the beginning of a whole new approach to education that can be traced from Comenius through Rousseau, Pestalozzi, and I believe ultimately onto Charlotte Mason. But notice that she gives credit to Bacon just as Comenius does. John Amos Comenius gives credit to Bacon as well. So what are the implications of this view of science? First of all, I'll go back to the same four points and revisit them from this alternative answer, the Francis Schaeffer view. Number one, science can indeed discover truth. Francis Schaeffer in How Should We Then Live said, on the Christian base, one could expect to find out something true about the universe by reason. There were certain other results of the Christian worldview. For example, there was the certainty of something there. An objective reality for science to examine. What we seem to observe is not just an extension of the essence of God. It is not just the appearances. It is not just the outflowing of the imminent reality. But it's real in its own right. That is, according to Schaefer, the Christian worldview. Because the early scientists believed that the world was created by a reasonable God, they were not surprised to discover that people could find out something true about nature and the universe on the basis of reason. They didn't give up when they saw what appeared to be irregularities and irrationalities of the natural world. They didn't give up and say, oh, it must be just imperfect appearances, imperfect lower level. Let's keep focusing on that imminent reality instead. No, they said this was created by the living God who is reasonable and therefore there must be some explanation for why these things that don't seem to make sense do make sense. There must be a reason why planets move in a certain way in the sky when we look at them. There must be a reason why things fall at certain rates. There must be a reason why a projectile flies at a certain speed in some conditions and not in other conditions. It may be really hard for us to figure it out because we don't have calculus yet. But that drive to discover, Newton discovered calculus because he believed that there was a reason why Planets were held in the orbit of the sun because he believed that there was a law of gravity and the only way he could figure it out was by analyzing calculus, something that the ancients never were able to discover. That belief in the reasonableness of creation is what motivated all of this science. <laughs> Secondly, science is empirical. Francis Schaeffer said, living within the concept that the world was created by a reasonable God, scientists could move with confidence, expecting to be able to find out about the world by observation and experimentation. Since the world had been created by a reasonable God, they were not surprised to find a correlation between themselves as observers and the thing observed. That is, between subject and object. This base is normative to one functioning in the Christian framework. Whether he is observing a chair or the molecules which make up the chair. This is a claim. He's saying that this is normative to the Christian worldview. Science is empirical. Science is practical. 
Francis Schaeffer said, Christianity is the mother of modern science because it insists that the God who created the universe has revealed himself in the Bible to be the kind of God he is. Consequently, there is a sufficient basis for science to study the universe. Another result of the Christian base was that the world was worth finding out about. For in doing so, one was investigating God's creation. That is, amen, that was your answer. We'll study science because it's worth finding out about, because God created it. And when you love somebody, it's worth finding out about what they made. If you love an artist, it's worth finding out about the artwork that they've created. And people were free to investigate nature, hands-on, microscopes in hand. For nature was not seen as full of gods and therefore taboo. All things were created by God and are open for people's investigation. Science is inductive, not deductive. Whitehead says that because of the rationality of God, the early scientists had an inexpungible belief. I like that. I wish I had more inexpungible beliefs. They had the inexpungible belief that every detailed occurrence can be correlated with his antecedents in a perfectly definite manner, exemplifying general principles. Enough data, enough investigation, and you will be able to induce the principles because the world is not filled with gods or the, the, the God created the material universe to operate according to certain laws. And we can discover those laws if we analyze and carefully look at the pattern of data. Science, and this is, um, this is uh, now I'm going to shift gears. And I'm going to quote, I mean, obviously you know where this is all going, but I'm going to do another quote from the Parents Review. And this is a quote from the Parents Review in an article in 1922 called, interestingly enough, Science, Philosophy, and Religion. Two of, two of the words that are in the name of this presentation. We've got science and philosophy. And the author was Stephen G. Williams. And in this article, Science, Philosophy, and Religion, he gave a, what I think is a fine definition of science. See if you can see the inductive nature of science in this quote. Science works on the data of experience. Science works the data of experience into a whole of interconnected facts of systematization in which the personal equation has been eliminated. Fundamentally, all science is a tracing of likeness amid diversity. That is to say, it makes generalizations. In other words, it's inductive. Science is all about the data of observation. And eventually, through that diversity, coming up with the generalizations that explain the natural laws that explain these behaviors. Now, I mentioned that David Hicks said that the classical model should be recovered for today. Francis Schaeffer said that the classical approach should not be recovered for today. Before I quote Francis Schaeffer on this, though, I'd like to have a quote. I'd like to share a quote from James Nichol. And James Nichol's book is entitled, Mathematics, Is God Silent? And in Nichols' book, it's about the, a Christian view of mathematics. His argument is the mathematics God speaks through and reveals himself through mathematics. And here's what James Nichols had to say in his wonderful book. He said, Greek mathematics and science stagnated because the theological pondering that undergirded these disciplines were not biblical. Now, what did Francis Schaeffer say? Francis Schaeffer said, there was no confidence that the code of nature's laws could ever be unveiled and read. And then back to Nickel quoting 
German historian Oswald Spengler, 1880-1936, remarks that the history of Western knowledge is thus one of progressive emancipation from classical thought. These men are saying, please let us not go back. So we have two approaches to science. We have what I'm going to call, for want of a better word, the classical approach to science, which says that science cannot discover truth, it is non-empirical, it is theoretical, and it is deductive. And in honor of Francis Schaeffer's assertion that, quote, modern science was born out of the Christian worldview, I am going to take the liberty of calling the second model the Christian approach. And it is that science can discover truth, that science is empirical, that science is practical, and that science is inductive. Now, I assert to you that Charlotte Mason embraced the Christian approach. And I'm going to take you through these four points. First of all, that science can discover truth. Charlotte Mason said, let us first of all settle it with ourselves that science and religion cannot, to the believer in God, by any possibility, be antagonistic. Having assured ourselves of this, we shall probably go on to perceive that the evolution of science is in fact a process of revelation. Revelation, what discovers truth if not revelation? It is hard to overstate just how high Charlotte Mason gave her regard to science. She said again and again that science is the special revelation of our age. And she was able to say that with abandon because she believed, just like, the, just like Francis Bacon and Isaac Newton she believed that fundamentally, with an ironclad belief, that God had created this world around us, and therefore she had no fear of science. Because the created world could do nothing but confirm the truth about God. She had the faith to enter into an unabandoned journey into science. Uh, it's empirical. How do we know that science is empirical in the Charlotte Mason method? Well, first of all, there's no prerequisite. You don't have to master the seven liberal arts before you can start doing science. You don't have to be able to develop this argument of why not only things are this way, but why they must be this way. In all worlds of the perfect worlds, like we can logically deduce and argue that it must be this way, and that's the only way we can have science. No, there's no prerequisite for science. She says, in Home Education, page 71, she said, it is infinitely well worth a mother's while to take some pains every day to secure in the first place that her children spend hours daily amongst rural and natural objects. And in the second place, to infuse into them, or rather to cherish in them the love of investigation. That means at the very earliest ages, this is before age six. This is before formal lessons. This is the quiet growing time. The quiet growing time is a time of science. Because it's about developing a love of science, not developing it, cherishing it. Because she believes that children are born with a love for investigation. They want to discover the world around them. They want to use their senses. They want to discover. And she's saying, don't let that go to waste. Don't tell them, stop investigating until you've mastered the seven liberal arts so that you can reason through these things and keep the harmony of your soul by being able to show why they must be so. No, she said, investigate, please investigate, investigate, investigate. Go out there. Get your hands in the dirt. Admire the leaves on the trees, smell the flowers, keep investigating, investigating, and investigating, because that is what will make you a scientist. It starts now. Charlotte Mason wrote in Parents and Children at a former meeting of the British Association, 
the president lamented that the progress of science was greatly hindered by the fact that they were no longer close observers of nature as she is. It is all written in books, said a journal. So we have no longer any need to go to nature itself. How do we know how many teeth are in a horse's mouth? Who cares? Just go to Wikipedia. It's all been figured out. Now the knowledge of nature which we get out of books, oh my, is not real knowledge. The use of books is to help the young child to verify facts he has already seen for himself. Let us, before all things, be nature lovers. Intimate acquaintance with every natural object within his reach is the first and possibly the best part of a child's education. I believe it leads to harmony of the soul. It's practical. She continues from the previous page in Parents and Education. She says, and for science, the child who is raised in this way is in a position to do just the work which is most needed. He will be a close, loving observer of nature at first hand, storing facts and free from all impatient greed for inferences. It's practical. And it's inductive. To show that it's inductive, I'd like to actually share uh, from the publisher's foreword of Anna Comstock's Handbook of Nature Study. I'm so glad that there was time spent yesterday looking into this wonderful, wonderful book and how to use it. This is from the publisher's foreword, um, the Handbook of Nature Study. The kernel of the nature study method of treatment is the study of the organism in its environment its relation to the world about it, and the features which enable it to function in its surroundings. This study takes the individual organism rather than the abstract phylum or genus as the point of departure. Mrs. Comstock believed that the student found in such a study a fresh, spontaneous interest which was lacking in formal textbook science. My Science education for my entire life has been the opposite of nature study. For the entire life, the abstract phylum or genus has been the point of departure for all of my study. Until I started to actually read the handbook of nature study. And as I have been reading that book, although I am a trained engineer, I've homeschooled in science, I have taught science, I have learned, I believe I'm fairly well trained in science. And yet when I read Anna Comstock, I realize that I don't know anything about science. She has opened up for me a world of mystery. So why teach your children science? What is the answer that we would give? I would say that the reason to teach science is to awaken wonder, awe, and worship. And from the book Ourselves, Charlotte Mason said that however little scientific work we do, we gain by it. Some of the power to appreciate, not merely beauty, but fitness, adaptation, processes, reverence, and awe grow upon us. And we are brought into a truer relation with the almighty worker.
Isn't that a good reason to study science? And then uh, my favorite quote in this whole presentation from volume six. I think it is, I think that it is very wonderful. A little girl wrote in an examination paper after trying to explain why a leaf is green. That little girl had found the principle, admiration, wonder, which makes science vital. And without wonder, her highest value is not spiritual, but utilitarian. Now I'm going to challenge you a bit. I actually believe that science is universally today taught in the classical way. I mean universally. I mean in public schools. I mean in private schools. I mean in home schools. I mean in classical schools. I mean everywhere. I believe that science is taught the classical way. And why would I say such a thing? Because, science, because students care about the exam and not the truth. Just like Aristarchus didn't really care if the sun was in fact in the center of the solar system as long as his model worked, I think that, that in general science education is about getting the answer right and whether it corresponds to reality is the least of one's concerns. The student doesn't even, just like the ancients, the student doesn't even care if the hypotheses contradict each other. Who cares? I passed the test. I passed the class. I'm so glad I'm done with chemistry. Students learn from authority and not from experience. What's their authority? The textbook? The experts? That's real science. It's the opposite. Charlotte Mason said that the knowledge you get from books is not real knowledge. We turn it around. Oh, you think you discovered something outdoors? That's not real knowledge. Come on. Real knowledge is what's in the book. Students are taught to work universally, are taught to work deductively. Let's be honest. I have been, I have been through the machine. I'm a product of the machine. I am taught, I have been trained to start with principles and make inferences from those principles. I start with a formula. You give me the problem, I don't care if it's physics, I don't care if it's thermodynamics. You give me the problem, I know the formulas, I don't know if the formulas are true or not, but I have been trained to take the formula, figure out how to imply it to the particular problem, infer the answer, and check to see if it was right in the back of the book. And if we test it out and the numbers don't line up, something was wrong with my experiment. We've been trained to work deductively. And fourth, Students are not taught a concept until they are able to, just like Clark and Jane said, until they're able to justify it through a series of causal links describing why it must be so. That's why botany today, that's why you start with a phylum today. You start with a phylum because you have to understand why it must be so. I learned all the phyla. I learned all the classes. And then I read Comstock and my mind is blown. I don't see any phyla in there. I see lots of incredible creatures that are all unique. But I didn't have the chance to observe nature as it was. I like to contrast my experience with the experience of naturalist and author Randy Hoffman. He wrote in the foreword of his book, Wisconsin's Natural Communities. 
He wrote in the foreword of his book in 2002, kind of in the author's preface, he said, a lifelong curiosity about the natural world, together with my parents, who inspired in me an awe of nature and instilled an urge to give something back to society, provided the motivation to write this book. In my early 20s, I had an obsession with birds that gradually led to an awareness of other forms of life. I found myself needing to know all I could about everything in nature. Plant forays, grubbing through rotten logs, and muddling shallow waters became my pleasure activities. And slowly, and I might add inductively, like putting together the pieces of a puzzle, I gained an understanding of natural communities. This book is my attempt to share that accumulated knowledge. I think Charlotte Mason would be proud of Randy Hoffman. I think she would say that he discovered true knowledge. I also want to thank nature for challenging all of my senses and being so much more entertaining and gratifying than the digital world could ever envision. It's not too late for your children to discover truth, to explore, to investigate, to draw their own conclusions. I believe that the Charlotte Mason community has the best chance of anyone to restore science to what Francis Bacon Francis Schaeffer and Charlotte Mason said it could be. I challenge you to be like the parents of Randy Hoffman. I challenge you to take your children out into nature. Teach them to observe and to experience. I believe it's not too late to save science from just making an appearance. To view the slides referenced in this audio presentation, please visit the show notes page. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.